Good morning. We are continuing our study uh, in this series that we have named The Good News. And it really is the good news because as we laid out last week, that every single one of us um, needs to recognize that it's not to some human standard that we are held, but we are held to the standards of a holy God that literally he has said, be holy for I am holy. And so we, we laid that foundation last week uh, with this idea that the gospel comes because Jesus Christ saw us in our sin and he is the great physician who stands ready to heal any who would come to him. And so we start with that foundation that the gospel is based in Jesus Christ who comes to heal even the greatest of sinners. It doesn't matter how bad your sin is, doesn't matter how great your sin is, Jesus Christ comes to save sinners, and that's what we started with. This week, we're going to continue our, our study, and we will be in the book of Romans. So if you have your scripture, go ahead and turn there. We're going to be in, in, in Romans chapter 5, mostly. We will we'll bounce back and forth a little bit uh, in, in Romans 3 uh, as well. But we're going, to, we're going to continue our study here looking at this particular thing this morning. That's kind of a hard topic. It's kind of a hard topic to wrap our minds around, and it's the idea of penal substitution. And when, when we say that word, when we say, when we say, when we say penal substitution, what we, what we think of is, is a number of different things. And I want to make sure that we're all on the same page when we think of this word. When you think of penal, you probably are kind of like, I don't really know what that means. But think of penalty. If someone is penalized, that's, that's the right frame of mind. Penal means penalty. We've got this. Someone's going to get punished, penalized for something, okay? So that's the first part. The second part is substitution, which means to serve in the place of another. Some ingredients you can substitute and others you can't, correct? Uh, if, if, you get, if you got one particular ingredient and, and you need another and you don't have it, sometimes it isn't, a, isn't an even trade, right? So really we have to look at these two words together, penal, meaning to punish or to pay the penalty, substitute is to serve in the place of another. Those two put together and you have one of the most essential Christian doctrines that you could ever put together, and that is that someone came and died for us. If you don't believe that, you can't rightly call yourself a Christian. I mean, you're completely losing the central theme of Christianity. Now, that is, Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the one who came to die in our place. What does that mean? Well, it means that he was punished for the sins that we should have been punished for. It means that he is the substitute. He is the true Lamb of God. And so we have to unpack what this means. And so this morning, this is what we're going to take a look at, the cross of Christ and a look at penal substitution. And the major doctrine that I wanted to defend this morning is sin is the unpopular reality that makes penal substitution necessary. A lot of people today, when you start talking about atonement or penal substitution or any of that, what they're generally going to look, look like is, what does that have to do with anything today? That is completely irrelevant. That's like old-timey stuff that doesn't really have any relevance for us today. So why are you going around talking about some guy who, who died on a cross? Why are, you, why are you still living in this world of animals being sacrificed and, and some crazy deity has demanded death and now he's going to send his son and there's this self-righteous suicide? That's what they kind of look at, like self-righteous suicide. What does that have to do with anything today? I've got to go to work. 
I've got sick kids. I've got bills to pay. Why are you bringing up this? What relevance does this have in my life? And perhaps you have talked to someone about penal substitution. You might not have said those words, but you may have said, do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he died for your sins? You are talking about penal substitution when you say that. When you believe, when you say to yourself, I trust in the blood of Jesus for my redemption, you are talking about penal substitution. So we have to get this doctrine correct. What does it mean to look at Jesus Christ and the work that he did? And, and, and the beauty is, but it's also harsh, is that God dealt violently with his son so that he would not deal violently with us. God dealt violently with his son so he would not deal violently with us. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe in the gospel. Because that is the central message of the gospel, that Jesus Christ was punished for us. So we're going to make three stops this morning. We're going to take a look at offended or most offensive. We're going to take a look at what it means for God to be a God of wrath and justice. So out for blood, God's wrath and justice. And three, we'll take a, take a final stop here looking at Christ and the cross. So offended or most offended, out for blood, God's wrath and justice, and Christ in the cross. And I want to have a thought in your mind as we get started. And, and it is a beautiful picture to think through. If Jesus saved himself, he would not have saved others. If Jesus would have saved himself, he would have not saved others. That is an absolute essential truth when we get to, to Easter time, when we start looking at the, the death and resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus Christ would have came down off of that cross and saved himself as the mockers were trying to get him to do, basically like, hey, this guy saved a bunch of other people, why can't he save himself? If he would have done that, he would not have saved others. So have that in your heart and in your mind as we start to look at penal substitution. Literally, Jesus only saved us by dying for us. Now there's more to say. He had the resurrection's important. Absolutely. Paul says if the resurrection didn't happen, we're in trouble. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not saying leave that behind. But today we're going to focus on the death of Jesus Christ. All right, The gospel, big picture, lots of other places we could go. Today we're going to look at one of the most central themes in the gospel message, and that is Jesus Christ came to die in the place of sinners. So if you will, stand with me, and we're going to read Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Very, very critical passage of scripture here. Not that there's any that is less critical, but this one, theologically speaking, is a very important um, uh, piece of scripture for us to look at and meditate and study and preach from this morning. So Romans 5, 6 through 11. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. May be seated. This passage of Scripture is a life changer. This passage of Scripture is is the gospel in a nutshell. 
so much good here. So I want to unpack the first stop that we're going to make in our journey this morning, this idea of offended or most offensive. I want to put out the point one, we are offended by sin. In order for us to get into this whole idea of why is sin offensive, let's recognize that we, we personally are offended by sin. When someone sins against us, we are offended. You don't have to teach children to be offended when they're wronged, do we? Just like last week, we don't have to teach kids how to be evil, like they're kind of pre-programmed that way, right? Right away, they're already able to teach classes, right? You can rate people, uh, can do it with some assistance, do it with minimal assistance, and can train others. Well, they're in that class of don't need assistance and can train others, okay? Now, the other side is, can they recognize when they've been offended? Yes. Can you and I recognize when we've been offended? Yes. Do you know what's offensive? It's sin. Whenever I build myself up at the expense of another, that is sin. And rightly, it's offensive to the person I've just subjected to that. If I steal from somebody, if I, if I bear false witness against somebody, if, if, if I steal somebody's wife, if I do something to harm them in any other way, it is offensive to them. And it violates the nature of community in which God has built us for. So you can look at sin as directly offensive to us. When we are sinned against, it is not hard for us to see how we are um, offended when our kindness is presumed upon. Let's put it in our place. When someone comes and, and takes advantage of us and we say, hey, here's a little of something to help you get by. And then they're like, is this all you got? You're going to give me some more? You owe me. What's our response? We're going to say, wait, what? We're going to be offended, aren't we? We'd be offended by that greed. We'd be offended by that disrespect. Or if someone actually came in and said, yeah, thanks for giving me that little bit, but I'm going to take this too. And then you start taking things from your house. You would be offended, wouldn't you? I trusted you. I invited in you, and you're going to do that? Right? I mean, you could, you could take a number of different paths with this, but this is very clear for us on a human perspective to be able to look at our own hearts and our own lives and recognize when we are sinned against, we are offended. Sin is offensive. And when we start going around telling other people about what sin is, sin is offensive to the sinner as well. So when we are offended, we are the victim. Someone sins against us, that's offensive. But you know what? Sin is also offensive to the sinner. Have you ever been in a sinful heart and a sinful attitude and someone called you out? I bet when they called you out, you were like, yeah, praise God. I was praying somebody would confront me. <laughs> is that your response? No way. You're like, who are you? I'm not wrong. You're wrong. And then it gets into this, bam, 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 shots fired across the bow. Who knows where that's going to go sometimes. But sin is offensive in multiple, different, in multiple different ways. It's offensive to the one who's being offended, but it's also offensive to the one who is sinning. When someone gets in our face and tells us what we're doing with our lives is sinful, it's offensive. That's why today when you talk about penal substitution, they say, I don't, I don't have any use for that. Why? Because we've already gotten rid of sin. Throw away sin and I have no need for penal substitution. Penal substitution is only relevant if I recognize that I am a sinner. It is only relevant if I recognize that I have a debt. Someone who is going to pay my bill is only relevant if I have a bill that needs to be paid. 
So you've got to look at it from this way is that when we start to engage the world and we start to call sin, sin, it's offensive to the sinner. The gospel is offensive because the premise of the gospel is that we are all sinners. We start, there's the foundation. You want to know how to do evangelism? Start there. Here's the foundation. We are all dead in our trespasses. Every one of us is guilty before God. That is offensive. There's no way to sugarcoat that. There's no way to make that sting a little less. Like the doctor says, you're going to feel a little sting, look away. No, this is going to really mess you up. Because it's not just something you did, it's something you are. You are a sinner. An evil person. An enemy of God. Your heart turned inward to self-worship. And you look at God and you say, I want nothing to do with you. You may, you may be something, but you're not anything I want to be a part of. So I'd like it very much if you just leave me alone. That's what it means to be a sinner. That's what it means to start with the premise of the gospel is that sin is offensive to the sinner as well. And we get this. I'm going to put this on the screen. Have you ever heard this? How dare you tell anyone else that their lifestyle is sinful? How dare you? Who are you to tell me how I should and shouldn't live? Who are you to tell me how I should spend my money? Who are you to tell me what I should do on Sunday? Who are you to tell me what I should do with my body? Are you serious? God, is he that petty that he's going to care about what I do with my body? you got to be kidding me. He's got to have better things to do than that. That's offensive, isn't it? We start preaching like this and people are like, get out of my space. I've drawn a circle and you're in it. You're in it. Get out. So you can't talk about Jesus came to save you, this is good news, until you first get in that circle and say, here's why you need to be saved. Now, is there a gentle way to do that? Yes. Is there an effective way to do that? Yes. In your face, ministries only works once. <laughs> Maybe not even once. But you can try. But that is the point, is that no one has any use for penal substitution. No one has any use for someone paying their debt if they don't first recognize they are in debt. And so we have to start there. So sin is offensive. So offended or most offensive. Are we offended? Yes. But you know what? We're actually most offensive. We as sinners are offensive. We are offensive to God. Sin makes us offensive. We must recognize that the way that we feel about sin and when we're sinned against is magnified beyond anything that we can even wrap our heads around that. If we, are, if we are offended by sin, when we are offended, when people disrespect us, when we are offended, when we are taken advantage of, God is so much more offended when his creatures get in his face and say, not even going to listen to you because you have nothing to say to me. You don't know anything about me. You recommended that I live my life this way. Thanks for the advice. Not interested. Literally, that's what we're saying to him. So if we can, we can empathize, we can figure out how we feel, magnify that. Magnify that. And a holy God looks at us sinful creatures and he is seeing us as offensive. We are offensive to God. And this isn't a popular thing to say, but it is the truth. So we've got to look at this. But what some would say, is it really this bad? Is, is, is all sin really worth the death penalty? Isn't this a bit of an overreaction? 
You're going to say what I do with my body or what I do with my time, what I do with my money, what I do with my words. You're really going to say that that's worth the death penalty? Seems a little bit harsh, don't you think? Once again, magnifies this stuff because it's not us looking at it and saying, yeah, I get a little offended by it. It really doesn't bother me that much. We can't even wrap our heads around what a holy and pure God feels when we do these things. And what we have to look at is the scripture tells us the way it works. Is that for the wages of sin is death. He doesn't say for the wages of the greatest of sins is death. He says for the wages of sin, universal, is death. Here are the terms. Do we get to name the terms? No. We're brought into this deal without naming our own terms. God set the terms. And God said all sin the wages, you know how much it costs. It will cost you your life. And we can look at God and say, you're overreacting. Really? Really? But you're missing it. The holy God of the universe who has considered every possible thing says, here's what's best. That I deal violently with sin. That I crush evil. You don't know what's best. I know what's best. And I cannot pass over it. It has to be dealt with. That's the God that we're talking about revealed in Scripture. For the wages of sin is death. And we can't stand it when the Bible tells us that is the terms. We are offended by that. But we have to take into consideration. This is exactly what we see when we look in Scripture. And, 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 and really what we have to ask ourselves when we look at penal substitution is how do we approach salvation? I don't know where you are. I'm just getting to know many of you. But I want, I want to make it very clear that salvation is not a reward of any kind. Salvation is not a reward for you having the right theology. Salvation is not a reward for your spiritual sensitivity. Salvation is not a reward for your clean living. Salvation isn't even a reward for your repentance. Now, pause. Repentance is absolutely necessary. The whole, you, can't, you can't look at the gospel call and reject repentance. Repentance is a central theme. Repent. Turn. But you know what? The only reason you're able to do that is because the Holy Spirit is already doing something in your heart. God doesn't say, those who can muster the spiritual sensitivity and strength to repent, they I will reward. That is not the gospel. But you know what? We as Christians think salvation is a reward for something. It's not. And if you think it is, you're missing it. 100%, no questions asked, missing it. Salvation is not a reward, but only and always a gift. So what does that mean? Well, how do we get this gift? How does this work? I want to turn our attention to first this idea of God who is out for blood and his wrath and justice. Because what we need is we need forgiveness. What we need is we need reconciliation. And we have to ask, how do we get it if these are the terms and we are found guilty? The scripture says in Romans 5, 8, 9, it says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have been justified by his blood, and much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. Okay, so salvation is not a reward. It is always a gift. But now we got to ask, what is salvation? 
I don't think many of us can sit and actually explain what salvation is. I think that we've been getting this wrong. Here I am, 33 years old, thinking I know something. So just bear with me. But I don't think we have this right. When people ask us, are you saved, can we truly say what we're saved from? If your first response is not from God himself, you need to study it further. Because the scripture literally says you are saved from the wrath of God. When you are saved, you are not saved from your poverty. You are not saved from your sickness. You are not saved from your mediocre lifestyle. You are saved from a holy and just God whose wrath burns against you as a sinner. And if you do not find salvation, you will be crushed. When you say, are you saved, what do you mean? You have to mean nothing other than saved from God. Whose holy wrath burns against a wicked generation. And if that doesn't mess you up, rethink the gospel. Rethink the gospel. Maybe you don't, maybe you don't believe. Maybe you don't believe. So when we, we deal with this, who, who is this God who demands all of these things, who says the wages of sin is death? Who are you? What we have to recognize is that he is a just God who is also a wrathful God. But I want to call your attention to this thing. What we need is a just substitute. What we need is a just substitute. But here, uh, I don't recommend circling and writing in your Bibles do it if you want to. If I were to, here's where I would say one time to do it would be. Circle, <laughs> oh, that hurts. Justified by his blood. In Romans 5, 8, justified by his blood. Do it, I'll look away. I want you to ask yourself who you think that is. Justified by his blood. Who is justified by his blood? says, we have been justified by his blood. Who? Because you know what I believe in? I believe in an actual justification. I don't believe in a potential justification. I believe in an actual justification. I believe that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, his, 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 his suffering, his punishment, him being crushed was actually pleasing to God. You're like, whoa, that's weird. That's what the scripture says. He is the propitiation. What does propitiation mean? Propitiation means to appease. That God's wrath has been appeased. That he's able to look at us in a favorable light. Why? Because Jesus Christ was punished. The heart is, is that God dealt violently with his son so that he would not deal violently with us. So I ask, who? Who actually receives this justification? Because you know what? Justification is a theological word that we throw around, but you know what it literally means? It means to be justified or to stand in justice. You know, it's really easy for us to beg for justice and to cry out for justice when we are the ones who are oppressed, isn't it? Lord, give me justice. We love instant karma videos. We love that stuff. We love someone blowing by us on the highway speed and doing 95 and we're doing 85. We love it when they, get, they pass us and then a cop pulls them over, don't we? Justice. You're sitting, in a, you're sitting in a line to pick up your kid at school, and it's a school zone. You see someone doing 55 through there, and it's a 30. And then the cop whips out and picks them off. Justice. Yes. But when we are the offenders, what are we asking for? Not justice. 
No, thank you, not justice. Give me some of that mercy. But you have to look at this. When it says justified by his blood, it means justice has been served. Justice has been taken to account. So what we have to look at anytime we read this is we have to look at the nature of salvation. That God is both the just and the justifier that we saw earlier. And this is such a beautiful thing to look at because penal substitution is both necessary and relevant. Because you know what? While we were enemies is what it says. While we were still sinners, while we were enemies... I want to put this on the screen. Every person is already in a relationship with God. An enemy is a relationship option. Everyone is already in a relationship with God. And there's two options. A friend of God, a child of God, or an enemy of God. There's no unaffiliated room. There's no room for neutral. There's no, I haven't made a choice yet. Yes, there has been made a choice for you. The Bible says that if you believe in Christ then you are saved. And if you don't, you're condemned because you don't believe in Jesus. You are an enemy of God. Enemy is a relationship status. You can, you can select that. And it's real. And God's wrath burns against his enemies. And here you are, you're like, stop preaching fire and brimstone. But you can't, you can't understand or appreciate Christ and his cross until you look at a God who's out for blood, whose wrath is just. His wrath is just. And so God calls for every sin to be called into account. And God will deal violently with all the evils and injustices, and that includes our own evil. If you think that Hitler's any worse than you, you're kind of missing it. Now, we would say in practical terms, he's worse. Yeah, okay, great. But in God's economy, there's not like a different level Someone who dies and lives a morally good life who's almost a Christian will go to the same place Hitler goes. Do you get that? There's not like another tier of, oh, well, I was closer to Jesus than Hitler. No, there's only two options. Only two options. An enemy of God is one of those. And God will deal violently setting all things right. But this is the beauty is that only through Christ can we receive the mercy we long for. Why? Because God punished his son. God punished Jesus Christ. And if you miss that, you miss the rest of the application. So I want to move on to Christ and the cross. It says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. This is Romans 5, 10 through 11. Reconciled to God by the death of his son. Who? I asked, who is justified by his blood? This is an actual justification, actual justice. But now he's saying, reconciled, by, uh, reconciled to God by the death of his son. Who? Who is actually reconciled? Because this is actual reconciliation. Who? Well, we, we, we believe that all who trust in Christ are the ones who will be reconciled, okay? And I'm not, I'm not trying to get into the different views too much here on the application of the atonement. I'll touch on that just a little bit. But you have to ask yourself, what is this whole matter of reconciliation? Because it's important. 
Because the whole thing is that we need to be reconciled to God. We are enemies to God and we need to be reconciled to God. How do you do it? You can't. And it is only through the death of God's Son, Jesus Christ, that you find this reconciliation. You do not, you are not reconciled to God through good works. You are not reconciled to God even through some way of getting some spiritual sensitivity and, you know, saying some right prayers and meditating enough and reading the scripture enough and, you know, thinking enough good thoughts. That's not, that's not how you're reconciled to God. We are only reconciled to God through the death of Jesus Christ. That's it. He goes on, he says, much more now that we are reconciled. He says, he, he doesn't say we will be or we might be. He says we have been. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Who? Who has received reconciliation? It's only those who have believed in Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace through faith. Whoever shall come, Jesus Christ is willing to save the greatest of sinners if they will trust in him. There's no other way to be reconciled to God but through Jesus Christ. But he goes on, and this is a beautiful idea here, back to 3.23. He says, but this grace is a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Okay, propitiation. We talked about that's an appeasing. He appeased the wrath of God. His blood appeased the wrath of God. Who put forward this propitiation? God. We, 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 we were to take that as God the Father. So God the Father, whose wrath burns against us. Now, this is hard to get into the Trinity stuff. But we are saved from God by God. Okay, premise one. Who are we saved from? God. You're not saved from hell. If you think you're saved from hell, you're missing it. Hell isn't some little space over here where God's like, I don't want to be with them. They're not in the cool kids club. Put them over there. That's not what God's doing. Hell is a place where God will visit you in his wrath. You say hell is the absence of the presence of God. No. Hell is a broken fellowship with God, but he will be there. Punishing evil and wickedness. And that is hard to hear. But he's going to crush it. So I think sometimes we look at the gospel and we're like, ah, not that big of a deal. How bad can hell really be? You know, I was driving in, I was, I was reminded of someone I know that, that they lost a child in a car accident. And I think that that's kind of hard in their heart towards God. And then I say, well, what do I say to that person? What do I say? I don't want to be offensive. I don't want to. But you know what the point is? Is I still got to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ even though they're hurt. Why? Because there's a reality. Sin is this unpopular reality that makes penal substitution necessary. Then if I don't share the gospel, people will actually go to hell. People actually die as enemies of God. People will actually die and be punished, crushed by the wrath of God. You are not saved from hell. You are saved from God. But by who? God set forth. He put this propitiation forward. That is beautiful. The one who says, I am angry, says, I extend a hand of grace. I make the way for you. 
And that is the beauty of Christ and the cross, that Jesus Christ says, I'm willing. My name is not Jesus yet. Hold on to that thought. We'll talk about it next week. But my name is not Jesus yet. I am the second person of the Trinity, but I will take on this name, Yeshua, which means Savior. Yeah, I'll take that name. I'll do it. Send me. That's what we're talking about. God said, I'm going to put forth my son as a propitiation, and I'm going to give him a name. You know what his name is going to be? Savior. Redeemer. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. That's gospel truth. So Jesus comes to die in our place to appease the wrath of God, but God himself sends the Son so that we would have a way to be reconciled to him. That is the beauty of the gospel. And you know what? I love this thought, and I've been thinking about it this week, is that God knew what, he knew what we needed. Write that down. God knew what we needed. He didn't send us a great military leader. He didn't send us some finance guru or some great scientist. He sent us a savior. God knew what we needed. And this is, the, this is the beauty, is that God dealt violently with his son so that he might be tender towards us. And God is both just and the justifier. He does not pass over sin. He deals with sin. Where does he deal with it? He deals with it on the cross. He deals with it through punishing his son, Jesus Christ, so that we truly can say, God, you are just, because you don't turn a blind eye to sin. Never. You deal with it. Violently you deal with it. Either in Christ or in hell. Every sin will be dealt with. Two locations, two places it will be dealt with. But that's the beauty. God knew what we needed and he sent his son in Christ who bore the wrath of God in our place. This is, this is why Jesus is truly our savior. He's truly our penal substitute. He's truly the one who is punished in our place. He's truly the one who served in the place of another to take the due punishment upon himself. And even though our culture might say that penal substitution is irrelevant and sin is not attractive, I want to put something up here. It doesn't make any difference whether we think we need it or not. It does not make any difference because if the word of God says we need it, then we need it, even if our culture struggles to find it attractive. If the culture struggles with it, it doesn't matter because we need it. We need someone to come die for us. The word of God says we need it, then we need it, even if our culture struggles to find it attractive. So I want to put this thought in your, in, in, in your, in your hearts today. Did Jesus make, make salvation possible, or did he actually save? That's a big question. How you, be careful how you answer that. Did Jesus make salvation simply possible, or did he actually save anyone? When you have in your mind Jesus Christ going to the cross and God crushes him, Is God truly satisfied in the propitiation of Christ? Or does his anger still burn for some? How you answer that is a very important and very important thing to consider. I'll tell you what I believe. I believe, in particular atonement, I believe that Jesus Christ actually had a plan to come save people. 
I believe that he actually came to bore real sins for real people to serve as a true pleasing sacrifice in specific people's places. I don't, believe that it's a, I don't believe that it's a matter of whether or not he's worthy of saving everyone. Yes, his blood is of infinite worth, infinite value. But I have to ask the question at the end of the day, is God going to double dip? Is God going to exact this punishment from Christ and still exact punishment from those who are in hell? Because we believe not all will be saved. So we'll all benefit from the work of Christ? No. So how does that work? That's another sermon for another day. But what I want to leave you with is my true conviction that everywhere in Scripture, the atonement does not make salvation possible. It actually saves. You do the wrestling with what that means. That's where I stand, and that's what I see in Scripture. The atonement actually saves. But you know what it also means? It means we got to preach the gospel. Because in time... It's only efficacious, it's only effective for those who will believe. And the scripture says, how can they believe unless they hear? How can they hear unless someone preaches? How can they preach unless they're sent? So how beautiful are the feet of the gospel for those who carry the gospel? That is absolutely critical. I want to close with a quote from D.A. Carson in his book, Scandalous, The Cross and the Resurrection of Jesus. He says, do you want to see the greatest evidence of the love of God? Go to the cross. Do you want to see the greatest evidence of the justice of God? Go to the cross. It is where wrath and mercy meet. Holiness and peace kiss each other. The climax of redemptive history is the cross. Man, God was once angry towards us in his wrath. But now we are reconciled through the blood of Christ. That's the gospel. Let's stand and let's close this morning. Father, I pray that you help us understand this this essential Christian doctrine, penal substitution, that the penalty was taken by someone who was our substitute. And just like just like we see in the Old Testament that they would have a scapegoat, that they would have a goat and they would write out all of their sins and they would tie that document on the neck of the goat or on the ear of the goat and they would send that goat out into the wilderness to die. And that was a, that was a way in which they could see a physical representation of what actually happened on the cross that they didn't really understand yet. But we see that, that Jesus is our scapegoat. He is the Lamb of God. And upon him are all of the sins laid. And that he actually died so that we wouldn't have to. That he was crushed under your wrath so that you could deal tenderly towards us. So Father, I pray that you help us understand these truths. The scripture says that while we were yet sinners, while we were enemies of God, Christ died and that through his blood we are justified that there's actual justice and through his death we are reconciled there's actual reconciliation not just mere potential reconciliation actual reconciliation so father help us know and believe that there is two options either we are enemies of God or we have been reconciled 
So Father, put it in our hearts to preach the good news of Jesus Christ, to preach the gospel to a lost and dying world, to call them to be reconciled with you through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, I'm so thankful for what you've done. I'm so thankful that you dealt violently with your son so that you might be tender towards us. That you knew what we needed. And that we needed a Savior who could reconcile us. So Father, this morning, I pray that you open our hearts and our minds to these truths. For the believer, Father, I pray that you tell them the truth of the gospel. forth the propitiation and therefore there remains no punishment for the believer and father for those who are not yet believers I pray that this Holy Spirit does a work in their hearts to lead them to repentance to lead them to submission for we believe that for everyone who trusts in Christ sins are truly forgiven through the work of Christ. I pray you move, Father. In Jesus' name. Do business with the Lord. If you've got to come pray, pray. If you've got to stand where you are and, and, and worship God for what he's done, do that. We will be available down here. And then as always, we are always around after service if you want to talk more about this. But I invite you to continue to worship meditate on what it means for Jesus Christ to die in your place.